Welcome to another episode of See You at Yours, and it's brought to you by Dawson's Music Belfast. Dawson's is my favourite music shop in Belfast. It is wall-to-wall gear, electric guitars, acoustic guitars, keyboards, digital pianos, pro audio equipment, drums, PA, you name it, they have it. And why I like this shop is it's a local shop with very friendly and extremely experienced staff made up of musicians and tech experts who are willing to help you out no matter what level you're at, but it's still under the umbrella of the Dawson's chain and that means that their prices are as competitive as you'll see anywhere locally or online. They're very well situated right at the bottom of Royal Avenue in Belfast City Centre, so whether you're a budding, starting musician or a pro, you just shout in there, you'll get what you need. They're a friendly, quality service. Um, They've got fantastic products. So thank you to Dawson's Belfast for helping out with this show. Um, I would not be endorsing them if I didn't think they were class, so go and check them out. Thank you for tuning into the second episode of See You at Yours with myself, Matt McGinn. It was especially lovely to hear your feedback regarding episode one with Duke Special. Uh, thank you so much for getting in touch. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed it. If you want to go one step further and go on to iTunes and give it a good review and maybe a five stars, that would be fantastic. That would go a long way. So many thanks for that. Before I get uh, knee deep into this episode, I just want to say a couple of things. Thank you so much to everybody that came out of the weekend for the gigs at the American Bar in Belfast and the Newry Arts Centre. November the 15th, I have been asked to curate a special evening in the Atlantic Sessions in Port Stewart. So it's going to be Friday the 15th of November. There will be myself with the most incredible band you will see. Uh, Nicky Scott on bass, Matty Weir on drums, Matt Kern, an incredible guitar player, um, and John McCulloch on keys. We'll be playing, but also I've got special guest Rhea Maguire, one of the nicest voices you will ever hear. Um, she will blow you away. And Wolfie Gilbert. Wolfie's a long-standing friend of mine, incredible singer-songwriter. And um, it's going to be a lovely evening. So the Atlantic Sessions is just such a lovely vibe. That sort of pre-winter up in the North Coast. Get tickets for it online on the Atlantic Sessions website and I'll see you there. So this week my special guest is a lady who really knows no equal. She is a comedian, a singer, a songwriter, a harpist, an activist... Um, she's been on the local and international music scene for a long time and she is one of the most interesting people that I've ever met, I have to say. Her story is incredible and I, I do think we just touched on a small bit of it, even though this podcast is, uh, this interview is slightly longer than it was last week. So I do hope you enjoy it. I could have shortened it, but we would have lost an awful lot of fun um, in editing. So um, I hope you enjoy it. This is the wonderful Miss Ursula Burns. And the only other thing I'm going to say is that, just like last week, I used the dictaphone while I get set up, but there's no point in losing any of that crack. So the sound is a little bit rough at the start, but it gets better.
Jesus. Um, no, I'm going to collect another chaise long. My whole, my whole vision when I walked in, I told you I was on the ground floor, and I was like, I have to be on the ground floor because I'm car- carting stuff up every day. Yeah. Right? But I walked in and was like, the beauty of life, the mirror, the beauty. Do you know what I mean? I was just like, I have to have this. That's in amongst the chicken shit. Yeah, it was just all <laughs> the chicken. It was, Pigeons, pigeon yeah. poo everywhere. It was literally pigeon poo everywhere. See, that's the sort of girl who's getting past the pigeon shit. The beauty of life, <laughs> I need this space. And I was like, please, can I have the beauty room? And it's been called the beauty room ever since. But this, when I walked in, there was this film I watched years ago, Hotel New Hampshire. And um, it, it, it said, keep passing the open windows. And there was these scenes with this girl, she had depression. She was walking past the open windows and they were all blowing out. All these drapes are blowing out in, in the wind, and that visual. When I walked in, she's like, Do you have drapes? <laughs> so I haven't quite managed to do the whole thing, but. Right. And I got the beds up. I have a heated bed, like, because you can't just constantly work. So, I've, and I, I have a back issue for years, so I, I have this crystal bed, so it heats up. In the winter, oh. it is freezing, like it's warm here, yeah, isn't yeah. It? but it's absolutely Baltic, mm-hmm. heat. So I picked the crystal. Yeah, they're decent windows. I thought it would have been like a shitty single glaze. No, I I put that um, bed on and have a wee rest. When, mm-hmm. You know, I just I believe in napping now. I never used to, but it's amazing. But it's really really good for you, and it's also create creatively. Like yeah, I just think if you I get waves of tiredness and like just like a, I think. It's better than eating chocolate to surrender and do a nap just to go, I actually got away with a tiredness and to, yeah. to just go with it. I listen to a lot on YouTube. I haven't got in so much. And I, I actually do audiobook thing. I find with being dyslexic, it's almost easier when the book's getting read to me. So I download a book oh, and yes, it idea. reads it to me. Very good. C- click and play so much easier than picking up a book. Yeah. I do read books, but I, I find the way I digest information, it's it, the, the block of the words, there's so much misinterpretation with mm-hmm. a very, very severe dyslexia. So it's um, reading can create, I've, I've nailed it, I can read, but it's, it's like, it's so much easier for me to glean the information when it's been read to me. Yeah. Is that something that was diagnosed from an early age? Like? Oh God, no. The, no. I mean, I, I was I was an adult. They, that was the problem. They never diagnosed it, so they just thought I was stupid and failed everything. Literally made me do my maths six times and my English six times. Like literally repeating these exams and failing every time. Like failed every exam. Like a All 15, ages. 16? Like, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I failed the whole way through school. They just thought I was a daydreamer. You know, I was, I'd given up by the time I even got to secondary school. So I didn't get an education. I, as a matter of fact, it was so gutting when I, when I was 25 and I was diagnosed with dyslex- dyslexia. And I got the bus to Cork and got a review for the first album and it said I was perceptive writer. What? A percep- it was the Hot Press wrote um, that I was a perceptive writer for, with the capacity to engage the profound and the mundane with equal clarity. I'll never forget because I read it and then I was like, that was the moment I got so upset. I cried in the bus the whole way to Cork because I was so upset that I wasn't stupid. It re- made me realise that I had actually just been swept aside, fallen through the net, 
no provisions made, got no education, got no exams, thought I was stupid the whole way through and missed everything. And it was literally like then someone goes up a cheese perceptive writer with an, an ear for capturing. And it just made me realise that I actually wasn't, I could do something. It wasn't, that was only the point where I'd just taken up music, you see. So what age are you when you got that review? 25. That was my first um, album. So that's that's a quarter of a century that you're walking about thinking that you're stupid. Yeah. And, and uh, It's so upsetting. It still uh, makes me want to well up when I think about it. Because, you know, nowadays there's such a provision for it and it's so, you're, you're not labelled as stupid and you, you would get, you know, support. Uh-huh. My son's been on Lexi Watch since he was at school. He's never been properly diagnosed and he doesn't, he's not even on the scale of where at the level of debility, you know, was debilitating. It was actually a, a disability that you can't see, you know, you can't write letters and you can't. You know, you can't digest information in certain ways. And it's it's now that I can do everything on computer. My computer retypes, changes nearly every other word I write. Uh-huh. And that's fantastic. And it allows me to op- operate probably 98% normally. Yeah. Except for the odd word I don't pick up, that I've put a different word in its place because I haven't realised that it's chosen the wrong word for me. Yeah. Or if I can't get enough words, letters right at the beginning, it won't find the word. <laughs> That's where Google really helps. But it, there's so a way around it now. I can operate, I can function. But it's also, you know, it was a block to gathering information and putting information out. Yeah. It was a block in engaging with the world. It's quite it's quite debilitating in that respect, you know. Hmm. And what way would it work nowadays, do you think, for like with, with internet and social media and all, would it be easier or would it be... It's so much easier. More, easier. Well, because I can, I can type and it, the computer will change everything, spell check. Yeah. You know, you imagine operating with something where you can't find the letters or decipher the information in that way. It's upside down. It's, you can't, you can't, one, one day it'll look one way and the other day it'll look the other way. One day I can spell a, a word and recognize a word and the next day I can't. Huh. So it's like, and it's changing, a changing, it's not sitting still, it's... So it's 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 almost like if if I was reading and somebody was like constantly yeah. sort of wibbling the page yeah and sort of yeah. but I mean what does it work then for musical notes I don't can't read you can't read you don't read music read. no I can't read so how did you start learning the harp then well I just picked it up and played it I did was you? yeah I was my mum I was toured with my mum and my grandfather I started touring when I was about I don't know nine or ten oh, what did they do well my grandfather played fiddle and mum played harp. <laughs> We'd be sitting on trailers in Donegal, you know, me and mum matching tops and my mum would be touring the folk scene and Liz was back in the 80s and um, she made an album so over there. It's, um, she made two. She made one with my grandfather and then the one of WB Yeats music, poems set to music. And by that stage, I was 15. She got me to set some... Uh, I'd always been composing from us from I could reach the piano I would play the piano you know mm-hmm. but um, and I was always singing songs and that was my thing I loved just making up songs I had a songbook by the time I was nine you know of songs I was writing but um, she put the track down two of the tracks down on her for, on her album got me into the studio and I recorded and it was a wee studio above a flat in the Lisburn Road guy from Corella de Ville uh, Colin Minzer right and he produced it and my mum released it, and she really did that independently. <clears throat> no record company, and it sort of fell under the water. It didn't get the 
um, acknowledgement, mm-hmm. you know, that it could have. What year are you be talking about now? It was before Yates. It was 84, 85. Right. Um, the LPs over there. It, it would have been when Yates was still in copyright. So Van Morrison and some other people, um, uh, Mike Scott, I don't know, uh, not Mike at that point, but some, well, high profile people had asked the Yates family for permission to do it and got turned down. But the Yates family gave my mum permission. No way. <laughs> so before Yates was out of copyright, mum had the album released. The angels are stooping above. in Sligo and loved it <laughs> and it inspired him to do his start his work on Yates and he asked mum could he he adjust her title and use her title for the project invited us down to the Gaiety in Dublin when he was launching the project this was 10 or 15 20 years later what? ah yes so that's, that's uh, about five six years ago yeah he put it. yeah yeah this was years years later yeah um and it was a real honour for my mum to be acknowledged for that because he was the one who tipped the hat to her and said her work was inspirational. Mm-hmm. That must be you some know. moment, like whenever you sort of, what did you get, an email or a call or something like that? It was when the internet started. You know, these things can't really happen because yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't know where people are. <laughs> it was whenever the internet started, mum got a message from Mike Scott. So, and she's loved that. And she's kept up contact with him all these years. Massive fan Surely. of his. She used to be singing his songs in the car, you know, so she was totally like... This is amazing. She loved that. And she's, she's, she, you know, she's always loved his work. So she was so happy to get the validation. Is it meant mother- a lot to her. And also when Sean Kelly, who runs the Cathedral Arts Quarter, yeah. asked her to do it live. And this was about 20 years later. Of course, I'd sung all the high harmonies. And my <sighs> mum had sung all the melodies. We used to harmonise together, but yeah. she lost her voice um, and couldn't sing anymore. Right. And my voice over, it was 25 years, my voice had dropped considerably I used to sing very high and my voice was way lower so and then I had to get Kira O'Neill came in to sing the parts that I used and to sing in the record and I sang the parts my mother used to sing you know so it was it was and we so had a whole load of musicians on stage we recreated the album that's brilliant so that was lovely to do it live again after all that time first ever recording but uh i love it my son thinks that he he thinks this he it's his favorite track of anything i've done not that, not that he's ever listened to any of my albums but he knows the work that yeah that's been done since he's been born in 15 years and yeah. he likes that the best 
That's brilliant. <laughs> so then, did your did your mother did it almost sort of uh, at the time knock her creative? I mean, that would have been very creative. No, what she, she was doing there. She uh, was running a business. Um, uh, playing background music so and I would be helping her with that so that mm. was like my day job so she w- we would be she would be heartbeat and sh- we'd play for all the highbrow functions like you know when royalty come in or the president come in or yeah, like yeah. I'm playing Stormont and all the fancy hotels and do all that work for about 12 to 15 years <clears throat> the grind mm-hmm. you know you're out doing the gigs to earn the money yeah. and then um, I was Person, I was before I had a family. I was before I had a child, so I was using any income to fund my own albums. Yeah. So it was like coming in with one hand and going out with the other, and I loved that. It was total cottage industry, you know. And I wasn't seeing any of it back. It wasn't like I, in those days, you were putting them in a Jeff, you know, an envelope and posting them to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it was expensive business. I was flying over to Brighton and. I was recording on two-inch tape and, you know, it's like, it's stuff that's come around as trendy again, releasing on LP and and recording on two-inch tape. But in those days, those tapes were £500 each to buy. They were, it was an, you know, you'd get a technician in the studio, you know, like you were paying a fortune to make, Mm -hmm. albums were costing me near 10 grand. So I was working constantly every week. But in, in those background music gigs, of course, I hated them. I was just sitting festering in the corner. Blending with the wallpaper, creating a nice atmosphere. Like, oh, it's a pity no one's listening, you know. But at the end of the day, your fingers are moving, your brain's learning. You're, yeah. you're, you're putting the hours in. Oh, you're getting, you're the getting better. You're yeah. just, you're just doing the grind. You're just getting your craft down, and the money's, you know, coming in. And I was literally just. That's why I don't have a house. I don't <laughs> have a car. A fancy car. I don't. You know. <clears throat> that's why. Those things, the materialistic things, aside from buying instruments and, and funding albums, which I wasn't really selling. You know, I still have copies of those albums. Yeah, <laughs> I think we, uh, yeah, I think that's part and parcel of it. Yeah. <laughs> when I let it go, there's peace. When I let it go, happy feet. stage had some discipline in how to you know that's the craft isn't it it's learning how to I used to I used to be a great person I loved Sundays for books because the other thing is my song books I've always put a lot of effort into mm-hmm. I'll show you them you know um, I'd keep a scrappy book for stream of consciousness which could get bent and I'd have books for like dreams and writing so then they would get worked into a first draft song book and then that would go into the final yes. songbook. So I've I've been st- I'm still stripping through the old diaries. When I moved into the bank up the road, yep. that was what I spent the first year and a half doing. I moved. See the see that heart box there? Mm-hmm. I had three heart boxes that size, <laughs> full of diaries, and I didn't want to lose any good stuff. So I sat and trudged through it, and some of it was the worst you've ever like from every year of my life. I'd been hawking around, moving house, moving all these diaries, and I had to burn them. So what I did was I typed a lot into my computer and thought I was going to write a book. 
It was so awful. It was the worst thing. I give it to somebody reading. They said, you will never be able to publish that. <laughs> it's just like, for starts, what is that? It's just mental. I tried to formulate it into a novel and it just didn't work. It was mental. It's totally, it doesn't even seem like a real life thing. It's mm-hmm. just, I suppose in a way I've always operated and that because I was staring out the window and I didn't get the exams. I was operating on a different dimension than the rest of the planet. I yeah. can't cope with TV and politics and can't cope with the ugliness of it sometimes. So daydream yeah. world, my dimensional world is easier to exist in. And that's what was in the books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not anything that can be deciphered easily. And I didn't know what to do with it. All I knew was the books were now heavy and there was too many of them. And I burnt them as I went along and typed the stuff up. And now it's easy. It's just on a file. Hmm. So, and I've still got cupboard. I'm still doing it. This, this yeah. is three years later. I'm still whittling down that collection of. But it's it's books. in a way it's like, um, you know, by the time you go to record, you, you know, everything's you can just walk into that studio and nail it because you've already gone through like three or four drafts, physical drafts. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like when you distill something or when you yeah. filter something through, you know, you're refining the yeah, refining, refining process. I I personally when I'm songwriting culture sculpt it's like sculpturing. So you get an idea and the idea is exciting and that's the easy part. Yeah. That's your inspiration. The hard work is it gets harder and harder and harder as you go along because the yeah. more knowledge you gain about songs and the, the more you realise that it's got to be simple, not complicated. I started writing songs. I had no template and no clue and no idea and I was free as a bird and I was easy peasy. <laughs> as you go on in the process and hopefully as you're improving as a songwriter, yeah. it gets more refined and you get the more conscious it's like ignorance is bliss isn't it the more consciousness you get about the songs that exist the brilliant ones where you're aiming structure Mm -hmm. the more work the more work the more work it becomes and the more you're aiming for simplicity but the the process is much more complex (laughs) yeah I think I know you see that in in a lot of I suppose in any um, creative sort of field like where there, there is that sort of natural talent and then all of a sudden that you're going to have to sort of do a little bit more to to, to progress at all, and that little bit more puts you in a slump for a couple of years trying to get around these new techniques, and then all of a sudden, if you get them... Quantum leap. Call it quantum leap. It's (laughs) like when you're playing music and you are playing and playing and you get stuck in your usual patterns and riffs, right? Yeah. And you, at the point where you think, oh, I'm going to give up this stupid instrument, this is rubbish... It's the very point where you have to push through because yeah, literally in yeah. the next three seconds or five minutes, you're quantum leaping. And then all of a sudden, you've got a whole new paradigm of stuff available to you that you just wasn't there before. You've broken through something and it's just like you're in a new land mm-hmm. and it's exciting and there's loads to play with. Well, and then you exhaust that and you're like at the end of that tether and you just like, what is this then? Boom. You know, you got to keep shifting to a new level with it, I think. Well, it sounded like you were, did you have a little quantum leap a couple of months ago? Because <laughs> you said that you're pretty much at that tether. Oh, no, I think then... that was slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could call that the opposite. It was like a hammer, sledgehammer came to everything for me. Uh, it's not. Except the piano, thankfully. Yeah, so that's not, that's not the same vibe at all. Oh, you just, I don't know, you're making it all up as you go along. I mean, and there is something nice when you look back along a road and go, oh, I managed to keep a ship afloat. I mean, I've never had a, 
I've never had a job other than musician. So mm-hmm. uh, aside from theatre stuff and composing for theatre, all hats around, around music. music yeah. But luckily, I've managed to um, turn it into my day job and fund. Um, I mean, along the way, I've been helped on various projects, maybe three different projects by the Arts Council. But mm-hmm. I suppose I have been creating for, um, well, that first recording was 86. So I've been, like, I've been putting out for a long time. Raindrops at pavements like diamonds You scoop me up together We run towards the rest of our time Kissing shelter in doorways Neptune is gone but he might return again Who knows what our future holds Walls me round again There's 14 albums over there of stuff that are, you know, that's mm-hmm. uh, been released. That's not that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's been yeah, yeah. written or worked on or got to that point. Well, that's the thing, because so. I, I looked just online, uh, as in, I think it was iTunes or Spotify or something like that, and you've just got the one solo album up there, and I was yeah. sitting there going, that, that can't be right. I took them all down. That was a mistake, <laughs> wasn't it? Because I probably know, I mean, lost all the... I need to put it all up again. It's What happened? Oh, yeah. I was told to t- I had to take it all offline because of a contractual <laughs> thing recently, which was a bit of... So, um, Can I just say, you, you keep on uh, avoiding n- naming something. Is that a con- contractual thing or is that just you don't want to go there? I As just in- I just, I, I don't want it to dominate the whole rest of the conversation no, and no, it turn that. into... It's just, I mean, yeah, it's just if I start talking about that, it's probably going to go downhill, isn't it? <laughs> well, it depends on how, on how you get on. Most people would sort of think that uh, that you get on great. Oh, well, you talking about Britain's Got Talent. I think so. Clanger, elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> yeah. Was there a clanger? Oh, I'm really upset about it. Why? I was, I've been devastated about it. Well, because... Here we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get telling you all the good stuff. Don't worry, we'll get back to the good stuff. I'm not even going to tell you all, all the good stuff now. 30 years of good stuff, but I have to talk about this. Um, oh, God. Yeah, my copybook was kind of clean, but until then. But no, the problem was they'd been asking me for four years to do it, and I'd got instinct always said no. Um, I was then at the point where I was recording an album, where the piano going on the left hand and the harp going on the right hand. And I'd written all this stuff on both instruments at once, which yep. I had, the Arts Council had given me um, money to, to develop that, develop that yep. craft. And I got, I, I spent like, I literally spent six months in here, mm-hmm. batting down the hatches and did it. And it was amazing. It came eventually, easily. <laughs> <laughs> but I put a lot of work into yeah. into honing that craft in, and it was amazing. Hmm. So and writing like that, so it's complex. What I was writing was deeply, deeply complex. So um, yes, yeah, so it wasn't. It was. It gone past like the the like some people you could sort of see. Oh, that's a nice gimmick, 
and then you realise that there's nothing past that, but you'd actually really... Oh, I'd done a whole album. Yeah. I had done a whole album of stuff on it, and mm-hmm. there was there was points where the rhythms were complex, and there was points where the harmonies, was, the harmony in the harp was tuning in with the harmony in the vocal, or the harmony in the harp was following in with the line, the piano, and the... Beautiful. It was, the complexity for you was, like, phenomenal. It was Class. amazing. Um, and I recorded it uh, live in January, but... I suppose at that point they'd been asking and asking and asking me to come on the programme and then they were saying things like, we'll make it really easy for you and we'll fly over to your studio and we'll record you and you don't have to do anything, you don't have to go anywhere. Oh, it'll be really easy if you could throw us only a couple of days. And it was just like, <laughs> oh, okay, I'm free on Wednesday, do you know what I mean? So they came over and filmed and then they called me up and said, look, will you play the Palladium on the 18th of January? And then that was a carrot. Like... The Palladium, yeah. you know, I love doing the comedy stuff. I'm out live gigging, I do the comedy stuff. It was that that they were interested in. They weren't interested in any of the music. Um, so I suppose I um, had some health stuff had come up and I was a little bit concerned about my health at that mm-hmm. point. So I didn't know um, how things were going to pan out. I was going for an x-ray. I didn't know how things were going to pan out, what was going to come back at me. But I was a little bit like, jeez. Things could go, yeah. I don't know what's going on here, but I felt like, oh, what the hell, I'll just do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Do you want to play the, so I went over and played the Palladium. It was really brilliant, fun, great. Got my four yeses. It was stand innovation. It was all, mm-hmm. you know, it was a gig. It was great. Yeah. They were filming me all day. First, let's sit on this Union Jack and talk to us. It was kind of like a bit surreal, but I went with it and, you know, got through. So I'd got through and I signed contracts and they were bringing me, then they were bringing me over to London every other week and it was exciting. It was Sony headquarters and contracts and it looked like stuff could be happening. I was enjoying that, flying over with a harp and got Mm -hmm. myself a pair of fancy boots for going to London because like this is, and I decided to park the album because at that point contractually I had to sign, either sign or you don't sign. So I couldn't continue with the album. I couldn't release any music, took my stuff offline. You know, it was, it was that point where the, you know, I was either going to go forward to -hmm. the live shows or not. So I went forward, but at that point it was, it was starting to get a bit compromisey. They only wanted me to do covers or stuff that they wanted the sensation and then the first time I started realizing what I was in and how upsetting it was was when it aired on telly um and I was in Rathlin Island everybody was screaming and watching it was really exciting but I felt really shocked because the song that I put forward to as my first choice was cut out and then the edits were it was all just so it was just cut down to two minutes of of the sensational yes. stuff and the way it was cut. And then I was shamed in the sun for doing it, which right. was, it was, Nobody you know, reads the sun. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know they say that, but it's the biggest readership in the UK. Oh, okay. So it's also swaying the population yeah, about yeah. what, and then there was a whole load of hate on Twitter and I find that very overwhelming and upsetting. Sure. And they brought my son into it and they totally shamed me. And they knew what they were doing. They put me in the sensationalizing shame box and that, that was the moment where I realized what was happening. Yeah, yeah. So I was at that stage trying to wriggle and get out of it. Uh-huh. I was already contractually tied in. And then the manipulation sort of really starts 
So, and by that stage, I was already starting to compromise and it just all went downhill from there for me. Shit, yeah. <laughs> so it was very, that very was, stressful. That was even before it had finished? That in, oh, that was, more that shows was, to that go was yeah, that was April, yeah. Shit. I had to do the live show. And then, then I was really upset about being portrayed with innuendo and about, because I do do, I do like to shock. I do yeah. like to, my co- my comedy set, I did bring, that was the, they only really wanted me to lie down on the floor with a the harp. They didn't really want anything else. Um, and I was offering them six weeks of videos. What about this? I'll play the piano with this hand, the harp with this hand. Listen to this song. What about this song? Look, this one's funny. This one's... We could put an orchestra behind this. I could fly in the air and play this one. And they were like, no, but we want you to... So it was just, I started compromising, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the first time in my life I've ever... Comp- I mean, if I was into compromising, I'd probably still be married. But... Um, <laughs> I'm not a compromiser. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I compromised. And it's a mistake. Thankfully, thankfully there were no contracts involved. There was. <laughs> oh, no, not the marriage. <laughs> there was. Oh, I oh, suppose I. That's what it is. So, uh, no, but no, seriously, don't, you know, wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't my best moment compromising. Yeah. It doesn't sit with me well. And I understood why I've been an independent artist for 30 years and what I love about being an independent artist and don't ever sign your freedom over I did I was in a bind yeah I did my best but you know what I flagged up in emails what didn't work I flagged up in emails what I wasn't happy about and I flagged up in emails that I was very upset about being um, presented with innuendo Mm -hmm. and although they kept that out of the VT the introduction I got from Andon Deck was the worst I have ever heard in 30 years of performing and I was in a high rise going up 40 feet in the air about to play to 8 million people and 4,000 in the Apollo Theatre. And I heard them just trash. The introduction they gave me oh, was... I didn't hear this. It was so. horrific. It, it, it was the moment when I realised that they didn't give a hoot what I said and that they were probably going to, you know, throw me under the truck. Yeah. And I was so... that I... I, I in that moment I froze. I was just yeah. Uh, I my heart my heart literally broke <laughs> because I didn't. I had said that I didn't want presented with innuendo, and they mm-hmm. they just give me a desperate introduction, and that was probably one of the most upsetting things for right. me. Hmm. Um, aside from being totally hated. <laughs> <laughs> trolled and like uh, assaulted you were, you were, and abused. So what? What? Give uh, what? What way does trolling work? Like, uh, it's just hate. You see, they don't care whether it's hate or love. Yeah. They just want a reaction. Yeah. So they don't care whether they're hating you or shaming you or loving you. They they literally just want viewings. It's just numbers. Oh, but even but even the person doing the. The trolling, they all they want is reaction as oh, well. No, it's isn't just, right? no? but, but probably, I mean, people go online. They're yeah. nice and safe in their cozy little sofa. They're not. Mm-hmm. They're not. I think someone like me has a lot more to lose doing such. Doing, I did bring my. You know, people. Some people said to me, "Oh God, you know, you brought you, you went down to their level." But at the end of the day, I I think someone someone like me is a lot more to lose. 
than someone who's just starting out. Or I, I, I've been going 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't properly get a chance to present my own material yeah, or yeah. to present myself or to present my work. And that's really disappointing on a, such a massive pra- platform. Yeah. So then people got, just saw what they saw and then they just, they just, you know, people enjoy hating. It's just you hate or you love. It's mm-hmm. one or the other. It doesn't really matter. Can I, can I tell you my point of view, which would be in, the, in a way that um, I think, I thought that, that the reason why you have bounced back is because of your 30 years experience, is because you know there's like over 30 years there has been this sort of spine built of this is who I am, this is what I can do and I'm extremely capable. Whereas if you had been 30 years ago going into that situation, you might never have come back from that there. I mean, as in, you know, could you imagine being all of a sudden raised to that platform and then having a swept from under you and, and then sort of maybe trying to like work in a shop or something? You know, where everybody's every day is just even in. going into the shops hard. Oh, you, you know, you come off something like that, come back to your groups, or like I swim and I see swim, it's like, I was just humiliated, you know, but you can't go anywhere without anybody bringing it up. Um, it was really hard to get back on stage again, right? Um, uh, would you have found that there are people, new people going to see you who haven't really, who don't. I've stopped gigging. Have you? Yeah. I I am doing I'm doing a few gigs that I had committed you know committed to, but mm-hmm. I have stopped taking stuff on just for the moment till I just recover because I just felt um, knocked off kilter. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think I don't feel completely that I've bounced back yet. You know, it is. Um, it is really horrible. I also can't believe. I suppose I've always, I've always protected myself from the world as it as it exists because I stopped. I've never owned a telly, ever in my adult life. Hmm. You know, I left home when I was seventeen and I've I've no telly, and I do of course since when the internet started. Get I have passionate about environmental issues but yeah. I try to not to fight every cause there's just too much going on it's too hard and mm-hmm. I don't also like being so public about um where I stand Man, I just don't like giving Big Brother the information of where I stand but obviously yeah. it's really hard they have it all anyway but I, I just I'm quite I'm quite outside I've lived the daydreaming thing the protecting myself from, you know, the not being able to decipher the code of how everything read and how communication mm-hmm. worked has kept me quite protected mm-hmm. to the reality. And when you go into something that is actually that ugly and you experience it and you see how that the world, even how the tabloids are allowed to just print lies about people, I had it written about me in the paper and you just I know the the people who set themselves up uh, you know also the people who are who are contractually not speaking about stuff I, I'd much rather have my freedom of speech but in this day and yeah. age it's kind of getting harder and harder to use your freedom of speech you know so there's there's actually a really harsh and depressing aspect to the world as it exists that I had sort of protected myself from 
and when you see how that entertainment industry is working mm-hmm. it's it's so harsh and brutal that it sort of makes me want to retreat so I haven't really fully decided how to recover yet or how to mm-hmm. um, how to how to get back or what what thread to pick up I was doing an album before this came along and I sort of rolled with this but it's made me really review my life and review the world and review how I want to present myself and what I want to say well I mean I suppose that's it's whenever you're saying about having the album and not knowing where to go back to it I mean you you're sort of like in a wee chrysalis at the minute and like it's almost like you're not really sure what's going to come out the other end but it'll be very hard to go back to things you've done before with the same sort of view as, as you were yeah, before you Yeah, it changes you. Yeah. And when I sat down at the piano, my instant reaction was I went through a lot of different phases of what I was feeling. They send you out with a shrink, of course, so that just gives you... Do they? Shit. Yeah, they know that... I'm Take probably this guy. Here's, here's this guy's card. He'll sort woman, out. woman. She, <laughs> she, she Skypes. Um, yeah, you get a shrink. <laughs> that just explains that they know they know that they're they know that they're doing it to oh, you. God. You know they know that they're doing it to you. But also the the thing is, I actually really enjoyed the process. Um, of being yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I really enjoyed being abused. <laughs> no, um, it's just the <laughs> it was so much fun flying to London. Um, and stay in a hotel, get picked up at the airport. You know, like they make yes. you think you're living the dream. But the people that you're dealing with are really lovely. Surely, and they're young and they're they're vibrant and they all love what they're doing and mm-hmm. and they're they're real human beings. And the 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 people who were my first port in the processors, teams and teams and teams and teams were so sweet and lovely um, that you've no concept yeah. until you're put on that platform yeah. and you face it. You've no concept of actually how, how you could be being presented. You've no editorial control. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Ock in terms of going forward, I'm just still recovering. I still, I still get emotional about it. So it's still, I'm still not, you of know. Course. And I, I be, surely that's the perfect time for writing. Just getting. I started trying to write, but it was too ugly. It, I like, I, and then also the point of trying to take it on. I thought about doing it. I could write a comedy show, and I could take it to Edinburgh. I could, I could. I could, yeah. I could, I could, I could, I could, no, I'm just going to well, collapse some, in this chair. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, um, whenever you, whenever you do this as a business, you sort of do forget that the main reason for writing is not to, whenever you, whenever it's a business, you sort of straight away go, okay, well, this is what, what's sort of coming out, so that's just the end product, where sometimes you need to forget that and just go for the cathartic reason that you wrote in the first place, and that's just to let it out. You know, so ugly or whatever, surely just get it down there and then weirdly put it in a cupboard. I've come into this piano and I've sat down and I have three or four songs over there and I had a funny one and I had, I haven't actually got the heart to do them. It's almost like I don't want to give them the energy. And it's also that if I do, I'm putting my neck on the line. You know, they're much more powerful Mm -hmm. and they can just, you know, they can just take you out. They can just write write what they like. It's it's it it is when it's that point where, you know, when we were fighting, it's when we were fighting the fracking here. You know, the infrastructure come in and they're setting mm-hmm. up in Woodburn and they're gonna, 
they're going to frack in the water, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the water supply for the River Road, you know. And it's like, no, you're not. And the people all got together and friends they are everybody, you know, and we stood up to them, you know. But we're just like a wee tiny group of people mm. and they're setting the police on people and their dogs and there's riot police. And, you know, you're getting the, pro- the, the concept of the protesters getting demonized in the press. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're fighting something that's, that's, Mm-hmm. But it's way still... bigger and I'm just on my own it's like and they're really massive like they, <laughs> when they were doing the YouTube stuff like they probably do own YouTube I mean I've been in their headquarters it's very futuristic it's very uh, it's very big brother it, it's very um, it's very what's the word I'm looking for when it's almost like it's utopian or something yeah, yeah. it's it is that it's massive it's massive Everyone See, talks like this. Hi, Ursula. No, it's it's not the people. It's the building itself. Yeah. Just the, the 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 machine. So there's an energy. The people you meet are lovely people, yeah. and they're all having fun, and it's all it's all fun games. Until mm-hmm. <laughs> someone loses their, their sanity, but um, it's it's uh, it's all fun and games. But the actual machine behind it, brutal. The machine behind it is mm-hmm. abusing people. Hmm. So. It's the same in the world. I talked to every single taxi driver who picked me up at the airport, you know, and drove me to these places. And every single one of them is from, you know, like a war-torn country. And send, you know, they're living in London and they're struggling to make their, 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 their rent. And mm-hmm. they're working 12-hour days. And some of them are working seven-hour weeks. And some of them are working all night because that's easier to drive and some of them have depression and some of them are people are getting abused in their in their ordinary jobs mm-hmm. they don't have enough money coming in to pay the bills they don't have enough they don't have enough um time off to live a life mm-hmm. you know it's it's literally we are coming to that point where poverty is a problem and people are the the the, the people at the bottom are really doing their best mm-hmm. and working hard but the exploitation's a massive problem and it's in the industry it's in the entertainment industry as, as well yeah. I didn't realise when I was sitting in the back of the chauff- chauffeur in the car that I was just being as, as exploited as the person just was telling me about how exploited they are <laughs> small square parks remind me of cheap trickery and armchair piffle small square parts remind me of the pain dissolving in your eyes small square parts remind
then I went off to join this horse-drawn theatre company in England. Horse-drawn Horse-drawn theatre company. I went wow. over for two weeks to make tea and um, they and my children. But I, the girl in the show, I helped them, broke her knee and I ended up in the show. And I stayed three years living in a tent, walking with horses, doing theatre everywhere, you know, every other day. Folk, like kind of old mask work and... It's an incredible lifestyle living around hmm. the campfire. It really ignited my passion for music again. Yeah. But they had... So how old are you then? I was 21. Class. They had... Uh, 22. They had hummus. They had um, real coffee, like mm. real proper coffee. They had like avocados. They had like... They brought me out in Manchester for Indian food. I... Like, I literally tasted tahini. Like, what is this? I came home, like, never, ever had instant coffee again. I was like this proper vegetarian, you know, because yeah. I'd been vegetarian from 1984. on. Well, from the age of 14 to the age of 22. And I had never tasted any of the vegetarian food. I had literally lived on bread and pasta. <laughs> so you were, you were the first hipster in Belfast Probably <laughs> And I got allergic to milk when I was four, At the same time Right I was at eczema Really bad eczema oh, So Oh yeah I, I um, Found out I was actually allergic to cow's milk hmm. And that was around the same time So I never drank milk again um, But I do eat cheese and chocolate Let's be fair And the thing is that Um in those days, they had just opened Framar and they did soy milk. It was the first ever soy milk. It was stinking. Yeah. It was so bad. So I just didn't bother with that, you know, yeah. then. But yeah, it was way back in the day, it was much harder. And what's more, you're, you're, my grandfather, I'd go to see my grandfather. He's a musician. You know, I'd play music. We'd be sitting playing music. And then he'd say, heat up that soup there. And then, I, and then he'd say, well, pour some of that soup. And then I... I, he'd say it's vegetables you have some it's vegetable soup and I'd go but there's a bone in it he'd say, that's just for flavour <laughs> like but I don't eat meat what do you mean you don't eat meat you know it's the same when we were touring around hungry and we're like but nem nem carny nem carny no meat no meat and the, guy, the guys go nem carny and they just pull the pepperoni off the the pig soaked um, pizza based thing that's like and you're just like oh Christ I've just walked 20 miles with the horses and there literally is only this pig soaked pizza base to eat and you're just no food and touring around Ireland oh my god in the 90s touring yep. around Ireland trying to get anything vegetarian anything of course anything vegetarian chips. it was basically chips and eggs and toast yeah that's mad so the the that that was that wasn't the horse drawn circus in Ireland, was it? Or the horse drawn? No, that was, was in England. The horse drawn was English, England, and Hungary. Did they Hungary actually go from town Europe. to town? Yeah, we walked drawn? from uh, Aberdeen to Brighton. You're joking. Took three years. Three. Not in that order. Yeah. Uh, it was all in a random order because it was different shows, and we did Europe and Hungary. We walked the whole of Hungary with horses. Um, I said I spent three years living in a tent. That's incredible. One day we're very strong. One day you walk from town to town. Next day you set up. Next day, you set up the show, build a stage, unload the stuff, do the show three times to the locals, pack it all down, put it in the van, go to the pub, you know, whatever, back to your tent. And every other night, we'd be playing music around the fire. And it really ignited my love of music. But mm -hmm. um, yep. I, after I finished that, I was quite depressed. I came back to Belfast. I'd been living, I had done, um, I ended up in University of Ulster doing a degree 
in theatre because they realised I had a problem with dyslexia, but I, w- I had wanted to do theatre. Yeah. So they let me in without the exams. I did a, I went back to the tech and one year got a D in psychology and a D in sociology and they let me in because it was a not a written coursework based course, it was a practical based course. Mm-hmm. And you had so, but then three ha- or four years of pretty intense practical experience under your belt from well no that I only got that after so oh, right. I got that midway through the course so they facilitated me doing oh, the degree wow. in one country and turn in another brilliant and I was flying back and then they thought I was in the IRA because I kept flying from the Midlands to Belfast <laughs> <laughs> and I kept getting picked up by special Roger in the interview because I was turning up to the airport with literally a wee um, vanity case um, with like I don't know paradickers and some notes about Brecht or something <laughs> in it and um, covered in mud, covered in horse poo, like nothing to my name, literally nothing, a passport. It was the days before phones and they kept thinking that I was up to something dodgy. Surely, in and a barn all day making a friggin' plastic explosive or something like that. Yeah, and they kept pulling me in and questioning me and holding the plane in the runway. I remember the, the, oh my God. Holding no, the plane in the runway? Hold the, hold the plane in the runway so while question they were questioning me. And then I was trying to tell them, look, if you don't let me go, I'm literally going to fail my exams. Do you know what I mean? And I'd get into, get into wherever I flew to and then hitch up to do my exams. Do you know what I mean? And then back and then fly back to England and then just be in show for the time for the show that night. Brilliant. It was mental. But the exam time was only an intense pocket of time. It passed. It was only one particular couple of months. I can't remember exactly, but I was there over in England for three years. I only went for a couple of weeks for work from the course to do work experience but when I got a job in the real world they were like nobody ever gets a job in theatre why don't we just let her stay and then they facilitated me doing the course from the road Normality plus time equals not normal Reality this is normal this is not By this stage, we were all like family on the road. It was fantastic. Sure. We were having a How many fall. Were there, do you think? Well, we'd fluctuate. There was twelve of us in the. There was a horse. Two horse. There was a horse handler and a van driver who went ahead with the set, and then we had three horses and three drays, and there was about ten of us in the show. So, so in total, it was about twelve people. But it would go up and down. We'd get visitors along the way. We'd get string alongs along the way. We had the director would come visit. We get like we'd be an expanded contractor group, and we had a little um, we had a little thing like a horse box. All the photos are on my Facebook. Um, uh, the whole photos are are there. I'll show you the album after. But um, and we cooked in the fire. We cooked on the campfire for twelve people, vegetarians, vegans. They had vegans then. Yeah. No one else did. That was the early nineties. Um, but they were all very folky, arty, like mu- artists and musicians. And I was in my element. This is the sure. bohemian life that I yeah. want. This is what I needed to find. This is what wasn't. 
I mean, in Belfast, I had found it was Mike Maloney in the circus because when I was 14, I got into the circus. Mike came from Australia and set up the circus in Belfast. And that was the first time I found my tribe, found uh-huh. bohemian people, people who wanted to wear colours and, to, you know, you could get beaten up going home for wearing the stuff we were wearing, like colourful jumpsuit, Brilliant. parrot earrings or whatever. No, but, I, but you, like, because there was, a, there was a gang of us and we all, we were all vegetarian and we were all doing circus. We were all going, whole place has gone to, shit out there and they're blowing it up that's whatever but we can juggle we can juggle yeah <laughs> we can walk on stilts and we used to go and do parades and it would turn into riots do you know what I mean I'd be on my stilts walking <laughs> up the road and the some the the locals would think oh it's a riot they didn't realise it was a circus parade you know <laughs> clinking at a brick in the back of the just head and trailed the up the road <laughs> it was just mental it was like like rock and roll troubles circus in the 80s jumping and like getting stopped in the vans on the way home we one i remember one night i was younger than the rest of them i was 14 when i joined and about 17 when i left and um the rest were all over 16 17 but there was there must have been about i don't know in my memory which is a while ago about 12 or 13 of us in the back of this wee van and then the army pulled us in, checkpoint. And then they asked us to come out at one minute intervals with our hands up. And there's three of them with the rifles there, you know. So we were terrified in the van. And we just kept coming. <laughs> 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 just kept coming and coming and coming. All these people were multicolored oh, and stuff. And they slashed the unicycle tires. And they wrecked what? our makeup. You know, they searched everything. This, this, they stood us out 100 metres apart on the, on the road in the middle of the night. And then they were like... I had to get to school the next morning, you know. But then they were like, okay, we're going to search this. And I was like, I was the youngest person there, right? And I was like, I demand a woman. <laughs> oh, my God. Everybody turned and looked at me, like all the soldiers, all the, all the circus people. Nobody could believe the youngest person in the group was like, no, you're not touching me. I, want, I, I demand a woman. Oh, my God, I was so sorry I spoke. They sent six-wheeled Saracens. They kept us all night. They literally made us stand there all night. I got back home at six in the morning and got into my school uniform and went to school. I mean, that was, that was what I'm it was sure like. I'm sure was still like fair play to you, like, you know, not... I don't know, it was probably quite stupid, really, because they really did kind of just make us stand there all night. It was, you know, a gun point. respect, though, I think that was pretty cool. Well, it's... It shone out as one of those moments you'll never forget. Yeah. It was, I mean, it's... it's and, and if you get past that, then you can pretty much... It's a good story. Yeah. And in hindsight, I'm kind of I'm glad it happened because it's one of those things that you look back on your memory and go, is it possible that that actually happened? But actually, that was, that was it. It did happen. But yeah. it was, at the time, it was probably really uncomfortable and not very nice. Yeah. But well, I mean, it, it sort of shouts back to, I mean... Uh, back to your sort of that other thing we're talking about the 30 years experience where in terms of like you know in terms of what you know potentially they could do to you you know by releasing an album or what other people or the likes of that army sort of scenario a lot of cases the bark is worse than their bite and you know and you've you're you're, maybe do you know how resilient you are the fact that you can do all these things that you're talking about I don't know um (laughs) I suppose I've just always had a hunger for not the normal path. Like, there's nothing conventional. I, d- every, I don't want to be conventional. Ev- everybody doesn't want the normal path, but it's it's normally it's normally uh, because we're too scared to veer from the normal path that that 
that makes us not do it, if you know what I mean. Look, Jim Britain's Got Talent was one of the scariest things I've ever done. Like, getting up, no one had compromised and wasn't so happy going up. I'm actually not that brilliant with heights, but going up 40 foot in, like in the air on that floating yeah. cloud and coming down in front of 8 million people with something that I don't had less, <laughs> less than one hour's technical rehearsal. I mean, seriously, when I look back, I think, did they want me to feel? Because everything was difficult. Getting out of the harness and kicking the thing. Like, everything was... It all went wrong, every rehearsal. And I had no written guarantee any of it was going to go right. So when I got to the end, he he hit the buzzer. I didn't even care because I had actually got to the end. with Nothing died. (laughs) Nothing went. Like, you know, that was a disaster, but nothing had actually technically... Yeah. I got from A to B and I was I was kind of like that's that's A to B but uh, in terms of scariness that is that is there's been that I I could have for four years I said no because my instinct said don't do that shit (laughs) (laughs) and it was one of the scariest things I've ever you know it was one of the Dealing with it was hard as well, and it, dealing with the back, dealing with the, me- the amount of messages I got, um, um, dealing with the stuff online was really difficult. But it's, I'm sorry I did it. Yeah, I did regret doing it. I did regret not dropping out when I wanted to drop out. I did try to drop out in a two week window, and I did regret not dropping out. They say it's better to do something. Yeah, and. It's better to, what do they say? They say some freaking... Better to, I don't know. You might have to cut that out. <laughs> love and loss, not love and yeah, loss. It's better to do it than not do it. It's better, well, you don't want to have regrets. Well, you're they? still very close to it. And the thing is, like, I mean, yeah. like the next morning, whenever you were going to school after being stopped by the cops or the Brits, uh, yeah. you probably would have said, I shouldn't have yeah. done that. But I mean, I I think it's it's a it's, that's an incredible thing for you to, to have done. And do you know what? I think personally that if anybody that was in that group doesn't say, well, that five hours that we were held up or whatever it was, was that was completely worth it. Like, if anybody doesn't say that, then they're mad. Well, you know, and, and hopefully in a year or two, you know, whenever that does come back, that you'll be going, yeah, I did it. And it okay, it's know, definitely not boring. It definitely, yes. <laughs> it's definitely not boring. <laughs> Look, the thing is, Okay, I might be crazy. Um, I messed up. Hands up, I messed up. I mean, I'm, an, I'm an adult sitting here trying to make decisions. And every day I have to say yes and I have to say no. I have to say no to lots of things, right? It's really hard. And then I deal with the consequences of my life. But I suppose at that point in time, I, you know, I'd gone, I'd gone to the doctor. The doc, I, they find a cyst. And then they, they, they sent me a letter saying you to go to the cancer centre to get... The, they, they, spent, they spent a week... It was a week in between... A really close friend had got diagnosed mm-hmm. with terminal four cancer, so it was a it was a proper in between. There was a week before the letter arrived saying we're sending you down to the cancer center, but that's where the machine is. We're not, you know, don't yes. freak out, kind of thing. It was well, it was more official writing than that. But <laughs> in that space of time, I had literally gone. When you see that word on a page, it was just because that's where the machine was. I freaked out. I had myself dead and buried. And then I thought, I could die. This is it. This is this curtains. Goodbye. I was doing the dying swan in the corner. There's nothing wrong with me. But it's the primal fear that you're not, you know, yeah. that and you, you, as you go on in life, you see people start getting ill, whatever. And I just got a terrible fear. And in that moment, I was literally, 
I was in the cancer centre on the Monday and the Palladium on the Friday. <laughs> and I was getting a brain scan on the Monday for Queen's because I was doing this live performance with the, the, there were brain scan and me just playing the piano and the harp at the same time. That oh, was right. just the work I had going on at that point in time. It was a very surreal week. But at the end of the day, <laughs> that was a very the, the, the thing is that at that point in time, that did inform my decision to either say yes or no. It yes. was like, I could die. I could actually <laughs> die. And this is, they're offering me the Palladium and yeah um so and as a human being it gets I suppose it gets harder do you know what the problem is everything has to be so cool and so good and so you know but you, at the end of the day it's harder as you go further along in your career to go I'll do something really crap <laughs> or I'll do something just to see what it's like or to see where it ends yeah. where it lands or I didn't know what was going to happen mm-hmm. but I, I thought for myself Things aren't getting any easier. It is hard to make a living. I live from gig to gig. I have a 15-year-old son, and I thought, maybe I could get an agent. Maybe I could play to, like, theatres with 300 people in them and they'd buy a CD afterwards. You know, maybe maybe I could be flying off to Timbuktu, to, to Hawaii to do a gig. Maybe, maybe these sort of opportunities will come off the back of this. Mm-hmm. And that was a reality. For me, at that point in time, that was a reality. That's what I was sort of pinning, oh, well, I'll just go further then on I wasn't pinning it on well here's your shrink and good luck with (laughs) (laughs) good luck with the rest of your life trying to recover from that (laughs) now you can go and pick your self esteem and your your, um, self worth off the floor and good riddance I need you I need you to laugh out loud lot to the the trolls and and the sun and all that sort of stuff but i'm i'm sitting watching that and the thing i'm going that's great that ursula's doing it but i know there's more to her than that yeah i know you know and and i'm not the only one saying that oh i know and and there's, there's i was so grateful to everybody here because i got so much support here um i got it i wasn't even meant to say i'd said to my mum look don't say i'm on a thursday night but then they were booking us for rosewick and i think she was on to the city council next thing i got I got sent a picture and it was me on a billboard saying good luck Ursula and I I, st- I was texting Sophie the girl who was, who was handling me and Britain's Got Talent going am I allowed to say anything yet and there was a billboard in the, in, on the bottom of the armor road I was like <laughs> oh my god I've broken my contract you know what I mean I was like mom you weren't meant to say anything you know what I mean it was just like and I got so much support but I was like oh my god I was sitting on the edge of the bed rock and that was a, a god I'm not meant to have told anyone <laughs> the billboard in the armor road <laughs> but um, people People were so amazing because I was pretty devastated. I couldn't speak about it and I couldn't say anything online. I, did, I couldn't even open the oh, conversation yeah, I, you don't you because wanna. I just, people were so kind. Do you know what I mean? They were, they were so forgiven and they were so supportive, but, but it was just, I felt, I felt totally humiliated. You know what I mean? It was, it was difficult because 
I I felt like I'd let people down as well. You know, it was it was really it was I I was so disappointed um with when initially on that first one when I saw what they'd done editorially and then the because the second show was live I didn't think that mm-hmm. they could slap innuendo onto it or hit the buzzer. They told they they told me if I compromised with them it was all going bells and whistles. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I but had followed along against my instinct. Yeah. I went against... This is the hardest part for me. Yeah. I went against myself because they're a big machine and they're very persuasive and they're very manipulative and they're able to get me to agree. But I went against my instinct and I rarely do that and it was horrible feeling. Yeah. So that's where I'm left going... Eek. <laughs> I don't know how to address this online, so I haven't said anything. No, you don't. I just didn't say anything. It's very hard to address. <laughs> like I, I remember putting a, putting a three-line thing up about, about Brexit, and I got what I thought was a like extremely neutral sort of thing, just saying, you know, everybody has to start reading a bit more and looking a bit yeah. what's going on. And I mean, like, <laughs> and then there were comments going back, and I'm going, not only, not only, are, like, are those comments strange? But I, I don't know what side you're on because that that's like, it's just, ah, you know, so I mean, like you can't really, you're best not trying to do stuff yeah. online. You know? Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't address it basically. Um, that I had nothing to say. I, I had so much to say, I couldn't say anything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and also I was still contracted you know, I think I still am. I well, you'd be, be very to pleased you. to know that all five people <laughs> who listen to this. <laughs> I, I, hopefully nobody on the lawyer team of VGT. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> you oh, might be goodness. getting a call, Matt. <laughs> well, you can't catch everyone. No, you can't catch everyone. Just like you can't catch a star People will cry And people will lie And people will leave you again No, you can't catch everyone No, you can't catch everyone Whenever our first one was like it was any time between like a week and two years old, constantly myself and my wife would turn around each other and go, "Could you imagine doing this on your own?" I know I've done I've done fifteen years, yeah, and I've I've toured, I've released albums, I've gigged, I've earned every single penny from gigging, and I've kept my car in my house. I keep moving house to cheaper and cheaper and cheaper rent. <laughs> I got literally now the cheapest house I can find, but it's just it's. It's not for the faint of heart. Um, If I was probably capable of doing a job, I probably would have got one. Mm. It's probably lucky I'm really crap at most things (laughs) and I haven't really worked out what else I could do Um, because it probably would have buckled under the pressure. But So I've just had to make it work. Yeah. And when your back's against the wall, you become extremely resourceful. Very resourceful, yeah. So, but it, it it just, something like Edinburgh, 
that knocked the stuffing out of me. The harp was broken. Yeah. I didn't get all the money in the insurance. I was out of work for eight months. It was, it was a, it took, I'm still recovering financially from that hmm. because it knocked me back. Um, it was a blow. I didn't have another harp sitting there. I had to get another one made in Paraguay and sent over. So it was, it was a blow. Jeez. It was my last Edinburgh was a blow that really did knock me off my feet. And it's still, <coughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm recovered. Now I have two harps. Now yeah. I can take the light one out. And, and I, what's more, it was a cloud of the silver lining because I got eight months to reset my back, to look at my back health. Yeah, that's true. And to reorganise that. And those eight months I got myself out of pain, got a new harp made. Um, like not, And the new one is so much more superior as an instrument. I go to yeah. play the old one and I go, how did I do this? You know, you, it's the quantum leap thing where you constantly improve. So like... Yeah. It's much more mellow. It's deeper sound. It's beautiful. I can't imagine having just the other harp. Yeah. So in a way, it all worked out totally beautifully and was meant to be. But in terms of making a decision to go back, also, to be honest, I'm a bit lazy. <laughs> I perceive writing new material all the time. You know, I totally respect. Oh my God, the people who go at uh, Paul Curry over to Edinburgh every year, new yeah. show every year. A hundred percent respect. Um, blown away by you know the depth and the growth growth the material just and the people who who are constantly producing in, in that respect in comedy it's really difficult um i do write comedy songs but i also write um yeah. you know mysterious mm -hmm. stuff and my music stuff and i don't have the appetite to just be able to keep writing comedy uh, I, it has to make me laugh if yeah. the funny bone falls out of the if the giggle pin falls out of the laughter shaft i can't write fun i write, can't write comedy <laughs> the thing is though as well you see performing um like performing music is is like on a stage it is bound to be so much easier than performing comedy on a stage is that not that not be right opposite you find that comedy opposite, easier opposite. but what if the audience if the, i think if, the, if you lose the audience the audience goes against you like that could be just like oh listen listen the opposite i'm actually terrified to get on stage now and do my ordinary music because I think I'm boring them stupid, uh, yes. you know, because I'm not getting a reaction back. I just think, oh, my God, they all want to go home. They look at their, oh, my God. I, I, it's traumatic for me to sing a normal song. Traumatic. I want to get on stage and go pow, pow, pow. Let's have fun. I think uh, I think in a couple of years' time you'll go. <laughs> I think you'll be grand. In a couple of years' time, no. I think you just nailed it. No, but I think you'll be. I think you'll be grand like very soon. But in a couple of years' time, you'll go. Ah, do you know what? Um, actually, things are going really cool at the minute. And although 
that was not nice. It still it's allowed me to maybe maybe it's, it might have even allowed you to to be yourself in a in a even more freer way than you are now. Yeah, it's like it's like any trauma. It just takes time to recover. Um, trauma. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, it is. It felt traumatic, so it it it, it does Imagine. just take. It does just take time to recover, and to when you've been knocked that badly off center, it just takes time to recalibrate and pull all aspects of yourself mm-hmm. back down in and get ready for your normal daily fight. Um, but um, no, I uh, maybe hopefully it's it's oh, it's made me wonder what's I'm at the crossroads and I don't really know what direction to go in, what path, how to pick up the pieces, where to go forward. Hi, I'm mm-hmm. doing that. Um, and also, I suppose I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm looking at the longevity. So um, I've been making my living out of gigging since, well, since I was in my teens, really, mm-hmm. and started those starts, was 84, and I suppose I went professionally self-employed in 95. So I've been putting out music for this amount of time, and I've, li- I've lived, funded it and lived solely off gigs. That's... <clears throat> That's been a lot of work, mm-hmm. and I suppose at the end of the day, I'm going. How? Although I love my, I love playing harp, and I love doing what I do. I'm just wondering how do how do I sustain this as as you know in the next twenty years, the next forty years, whatever. I don't know how long it last, but you know. I think if you got this far, girl, you you. Yeah. Another thing I'm thinking though is that like there's a thing Blaine Boyd referred to it as transactional analysis, where it's like. Um, and I, I would have had it before, or maybe you would have had it where, say, if <clears throat> if you've been this tour planned and you're really looking forward to this tour and it's done and you really should be feeling good about yourself saying, that was, pat myself on the back, I put all that together, that was great. Instead, you go into this sort of stasis of uncertainty of what's next, da 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 and this, this void almost. This is the classic. Yeah. Because also, um, this summer, <clears throat> when when we were in that process, we had to keep time free, so I couldn't book things in, right? Exactly. Then some normal things that I normally do. Rose Week went from a week to three days. There was a few other gigs that just normally happen that just yeah. through other funding things and their own problems that just... I didn't have the same volume of work in the summer, which meant it was financially more difficult. Um, so I, you just... It's hard not to panic, but you also come off something exhausted, but you get the adrenal slump. So, yeah. as you know, the adrenals and the performing things. So you, you're coping. Thing is, I'm 30 years in, you learn that when the phone's not... You know, when you're not out, you, you learn not to panic. Yeah. I mean, you mightn't have all the money in the world to go on a holiday or to go and relax like you would like to, but you learn... You learn thirty years in. You learn no one chops your head off. Yeah. You actually do survive these points in time, yep. and eventually, despite the grumbleness of moving from fifth gear to second gear, which is a real, like when you move from fifth to second or first, it's like it's really hard on you. It's hard on your mind. It's because you're used to going at this pace and you want to be living at that pace, and it's hard not to freak out. You have to eventually get used to one. You know, you just you settle in. So mm-hmm. then I go into like the dreamer state, the writing state, the engaging with, you know, psychology or the things I'm interested in, lists and yeah. what's next and crossroads and swimming in the sea, just stuff that's going to replenish and um, get you to that point mm-hmm. 
where you know what what is next. Whereas probably and that that definitely would have and if you imagine like you would have been good at a different gear with the the Brendan Scott Talent thing than you mm. would have for a lot of other stuff, and then in that change down gears it would have been tough enough except somebody really messed your gearbox at the same time. So, I mean, it, it's it's going to be... It's a big cheap gear change and and it just didn't go down in one swift motion. So it's like... Yeah, I was very upset. It'll, it'll, it, but, I mean, but you know what I mean? Like, it'll, it'll, it definitely will be... You'll be, like, back up there in sixth gear, seventh gear. Seven, eight, nine. No, I love touring. And, you know, my son's 16 now. I have to say, of all the albums I ever released... I've, you know, I did loads of albums. I've done loads of gigs. I've ticked loads of things off, off, you know, the list of what you would love to do. I've played, you know, all amazing places yeah. and loads of tours and countries and all that. I loved it. I loved everything. Nothing tops having a kid. You know, like the the challenge, the reward, the the. It it is hard to do. It has has been hard to do both and to do both on my own. It's been properly a proper impossible job bringing up a child alone mm-hmm. is actually impossible you're going to get it wrong you read any psychology book it's all to do with how your parents went wrong you just, <laughs> there's, there's no way you're going to get it right it's a nightmare right it's a nightmare it's just like the human race is totally like messed up and it's all the parents fault and you're a parent and then you're going oh i'm trying to get this right it's really hard and then you're trying to do this other impossible job at the same time I and mean, at the end of the day I just keep going, I tried, I failed, I tried, I failed, another epic fail from your mother. And I just, let's cruise on on to the next moment. When I fail and I get it wrong, I just sit, sit, sit him down and go, look, I'm human and this is really hard. I'm doing my ultimate best for you, but this, it, I, that was really bad. And I really messed up there. Nothing compares, no album compares to that process of, of bringing up a child so in a way I'm so grateful for both those roles like I'm I'm grateful for all the albums I'm grateful you know that I got a chance to 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 do something lovely to play music and to create music and feel very blessed to have to be able to have structured my life around something I love I have to say when you turn it into a business and what it is your money earning thing it's not a joy. Like people are messaging me going, come play my festival. They really think I might enjoy it. Are they mad? Do they think I enjoy packing my car, putting the harp in the car, driving somewhere, meeting people, playing music? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's work. It's work. It's hard work. I have to sort the kid out and put food on the table. It's not, it's not, I'm not actually going for a pleasure. It's hard for two, <clears throat> never mind one. I mean, like yeah. people would say, like I have three, and people would say, like, you know, we're going from two to three. That's really tough. And I was like, nothing will ever be like going from zero children to one children. Nothing. Because that's mental. It is, man. Yeah. It's a whole other... Like, at that point, we realise you can't even go to the loo. <laughs> <laughs> I still can't. Oh. It's like, it's like you're, you know, how yeah. you get any music done with three kids, I do not know. I don't know how you get it well, done. That's the one thing. It, it focuses your, your ability to, you know, I've got an hour there. So after I go to the toilet by myself, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to spend a lot of time on that song. Or I'm going to have it almost planned with tea, what I'm going to do. Yeah. Whereas I never had that before. Yeah. I could never, um, I mean, it, it, would, it would have taken me years to do something like to a song or to an album that now would take me like three or four months, you know, and now I've got like a 
20th, 30th of the time that I had then, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's class and that way. It really it's the same with the songwriting. It focuses down, yeah. you know, where you spend hours messing around with something yeah. or resting around with you're not going to you're, you're going to nail everything like I yeah, need that yeah. I need that, that middle eight I need that that verse done yeah, <laughs> I need it done now yeah. you know what I mean it's like you get it, snippy snap snip let's get this done <laughs> you know it is it's that it's that uh, focus definitely yeah. when your time is precious it's, it's what they say isn't it give something to a busy person yeah. it's the people who are busy who'll get stuff done yeah that's true. And it's true. It's about the gear thing. Like when you're in fifth gear, you can get it all done. Yeah. When you make that shift down to first, it is much harder. It's just the time isn't as important. It's a different, it's like a different dimension you have to, mm-hmm. to enter into. Isn't it? Well, I've got here, you know, I've got the studio. This so is this is my wee, this is my, I can, this is a great space. It can be full of time or devoid of time, whatever you choose. You just put the setting on the dial on the door <laughs> on your way in. <laughs> <laughs> to your preference of the gear that you're in at that moment in time Brilliant. and it'll deliver <laughs> well, actually, I am going to I think I love you and leave you thank you so much for having me in this wonderful little room thank you and um it was a pleasure. Thank you for, <laughs> for spilling your, guts. your lovely chat. <laughs> see if it gets us in trouble. <laughs> oh, well. See us. They can see us, can't they? I so sue me. <laughs> so sue me. Brent's got talent. Go sue me. Go on then. Bye. You can leave it there. <laughs> So what about that? The girl is infectious. She is uh, just incredible. What a character. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Go on to iTunes, like and subscribe and leave a rating, leave a review and book tickets. If you're in the Port Stewart area, book tickets for uh, the Atlantic Sessions. I'd love to see you there. It's going to be an incredible night. See you next time with a new special guest. Thank you.